Some people say the great actor is not the one that delivers a line, but the one that listens to one. And the same is true for a director, I believe. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a charismatic con man goes after a dangerous mark in director Guillermo del Toro's neo-noir psychological thriller, Nightmare Alley. Set in 1940s New York, the film weaves the tale of a down-on-his-luck hustler who teams up with a clairvoyant and her mentalist husband to scam the wealthy. With the aid of a mysterious psychiatrist, he sets his eyes on a bigger target, a dangerous tycoon who might be his most formidable opponent yet. In addition to Nightmare Alley, Mr. Del Toro's directorial credits include the features Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, the pilot for the series The Strain, and the DGA award-winning film The Shape of Water. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Del Toro shares insight into the making of Nightmare Alley with fellow director Tim Blake Nelson. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Let's start with a general question. This is a noir. Yes. Well, um, mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to speak about that and also to do so in the context of when you first decided you wanted to make this movie, which I know was a while ago, and then why now? All right. Well, the thing is noir, first of all, uh, even at its origins, is defined by the time it's dawning, you know? is the, the abandonment of the pastoral ideals of a foundational America and uh, the clash with the brutality of urban life and industrial reality, post-depression, you know? And it's a part of a, a movement that is in the, in the air. You know, you have Thomas Hart Benton, you have uh, the Wyatts, you have, um, you know, uh, all, the, all the American realists. You know, it's, it's really... Uh, in the air, and and those painters were very important in 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 an influence. You know, Grand Wood, uh, an infinity of them, and of course Edward Hopper, who is uh, the master of uh, suffocating through architecture. <laughs> you know, but uh, this also, in terms of the prose, which is important, comes out of uh, Hemingway's uh, prose is adopted by people like Cornel Woolrich, James M. Cain, Chandler, Hammett, and so forth, and they unclog uh, the reality of an America that has the American dream and the nightmare on the reverse and where the game is rigged uh, between the haves and the have-nots. That, all that comes into play. And we thought, well, that's noir for us, for Kim and I and the way I wanted to do it. I didn't want to do the cliches of early noir, you know, which is uh, voiceover, dame smoking in the shadow, slow-moving fan, Venetian blinds, but all that, I, that's a dead man where no played, you know? And I, and I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to treat it like a real period movie. Uh, noir and horror, the two genres that I've been most attracted since I was a kid, which tells you what kind of kid I was. Uh, it, it, they, they both um, emerge from uh, expressionism. And they both are incredibly heavy parables about moral choices or morality and ethics and so forth. And, uh, and I knew those were important. For example, in noir, it's extremely important to see a character make a decision 
or a series of decisions that lead to an impending doom. In, in a way, to me, noir is the American tragedy. And in, in the Greek tragedy is the gods against man. And in American tragedy is man making bad decisions against man. And, and the fact that it exposes that in that rigged game, the only way to transcend it is by breaking the rules, committing a crime, uh, which is what gives birth also to the femme fatale. Because these are ultimately women that are seeking agency in, a, in an even more rigged game, which led us to Lilith and so forth. So when we came in, and I hope one day we can show that movie, um, we said, let's make the movie so it can live in black and white. And we do a serigraph pass of color. And we obviously ascribe color. Uh, we have meaning on the shapes, the color, the, the forms. I mean, for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, the carnival is all living texture. Skies, we did the Thomas Hart Benton skies. We did them digitally because we could not. In black and white, if you put a color filter, you can get density on the clouds. In color, you cannot do that. So we uh, replace about 50 skies in the movie with uh, uh, clouds of the right density. And we did all the, all the carnival. We decided to do it for real outside, not inside in a green screen stage which kills it, dissects it, because the air makes the tents breathe and pulsate like uh, hearts or lungs and so forth. And the color palette changes. In the carnival, there is an, a, a huge abundance of red. And that red disappears in the city. And we only keep in red Lilith's lips, yeah. blood, uh, the Salvation Army, and the, the coat of Molly and her hat. That's it. You can watch the movie. I hope, a few more times and, and find out that this is absolutely true. The shapes then, uh, again, if you watch it again, in the, in the carnival, we established a circle that is going to be the geek pit chasing stand with the ferris wheel, then the pit itself, and we repeat it over and over and over in mirrors. Once he leaves the carnival, he exists a lot in mirrors. He is no longer exactly real. You know, and if you watch it again, the circles pursue him. The club is a circle. The rehearsal room is a circle. The final image is him with a circle behind. The uh, on and so forth. You know, and we made everything in the city uh, uh, alleys. He's in an alley, going to that destiny. The offices. Uh, if you watch Grindel again, it's a it's an alley with three circles that take him to the light detector test and so forth. So we said, this is the noir. The one thing that thematically we wanted to do, which is not common in noir, in noir, perhaps because of the Hays Code, and this is why we watched so much pre-code. We watch um, movies like Heroes for Sale. William Wilder was very useful. Uh, William Wildman, sorry. It, it was useful because it was men returning from the war addicted to the puppy. And, uh, and they don't impose a moral judgment. They, they show you a very discarded view. But we said one of the things we're going to try in this movie is we will not impose a moral judgment on the characters. It's not that this is super bad. They're, they're bad or worse or imperfect. Even the good people in the carnival, they don't have to be perfect because we thought uh, the real tension should be about today. About, it's, it's a movie about what is happening right now. It may be in the 30s and 40s, but we said if you can identify a post-war uh, noir with Mitchum and all the 
pulsating themes of that period are there. You can see post-Vietnam, Long Goodbye with Elliot Gould, which is completely different beast, or Bob Raffleson's Postman, or his 80s and 90s, and each one of them, and they said, what are we going to talk about that is today? And it's truth, lies, being seen, and reality, which are things that are absolutely alive right now. And, and that, I guess, is answers the first question. <laughs> Sorry, I think we're going to do three. <laughs> so. It sort of dovetails into my second question, so I'm actually going to... Thank so God. interesting to hear. Uh, so there was a first film based on the Gresham no, yeah. novel uh, starring Tyrone Powers, yeah. um, directed by Edmund Golding, mm -hmm. uh, released in 1947, and it takes place after the war, so it's a post-war noir. Ultimately... This is just my interpretation of it. Please correct me if you disagree. It pits three forces in opposition to one another. Religion, superstition, and psychology. Mm -hmm. With a sort of love wins out ending. You set your version in the depression, mm -hmm. just as the war is about to begin. Yes. And you structure it around three women and three father figures. Yes, correct. Um, and you seem to make it about the lethal ugliness of capitalism. Very much. Uh, that's my take. I like um, it. <laughs> so how did you come to this? And how did the novel and previous film iteration of the movie mm -hmm. impact what you did? Well, when I, when I first heard about the, the project, I mean, it was Ron Perlman, 1992. Ron said, uh, we were watching uh, Elmer Gantry. And he said, I would like to play a character like this. And he said, and there's this, uh, this movie, uh, which was unavailable. You know, Nightmare Alley, where there's this character, Stanton Carly, and I would like to play him. Ron was pretty young back then, as was I. And I couldn't get the VHS for that. That's how old it was. And, and, I, and I got the novel, and I read it, and I went, oh, my God, this is a treasure trove of depravity, brilliance, sensibility, beauty, poetry, repugnancy. I said, I, I'm in. <laughs> you know, and then, and then I saw the movie, and the movie, I went, I like it, but I, there's obviously a, not one but two or three versions that can come out of the novel. The novel is a mine uh, of, uh, you can mine it for two, three more versions. And that's a big difference. I think remake is when you take the same material that was created for the same medium and you redo it. When you have a, you know, there's no such a thing as a remake of Macbeth or Hamlet or, you know, in, in Grapes of Wrath. There are versions. So we said, let's take that. Many years later, Kim and I were talking about doing something together and Kim said, what about Nightmare Alley? And we loved that idea. Now, as to the way you see it, I... I agree completely with some. To me, there is a guiding force, which is, um, and this we came together to it. Uh, we did a deep dive into Carnival Live, all the writings of Lynn and Lindsey Gresham. We reread some uh, of the novels that were pulsating at the time. You know, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Day of the Locust, uh, you know, uh, Miss Lonely Hearts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And, and obviously, reading his biography, trying to piece it together, I don't know how much you know about him, but he has become an appendix to the life of his wife when he, she left him for C.S. Lewis. If you saw Shadowlands, that's, that's his wife, and he's off the picture. And most of his papers have gone to the C.S. Lewis uh, archives, so it was pretty hard to find much. We found a lot to the point that we very much are committed to trying to write a biography of him, you know? But one of the things that was great is uh, Nick Tosh's in his introduction to the book, he says that he left two cards when he committed suicide in a hotel, Hotel Dixie, I think, in New York, where he had written Nightmare Alley. He, he left uh, one annotation that he found that said, Stan is the author, meaning Stan is me. And the second thing is he had two, two cards, two personal cards with him. One said, retired, no, no business, no money, something like no future, I know, something equally dramatic. And the other one that became a guiding force is you'd rather die than face the truth. And, and then I thought of a John, uh, a, a Jungian phrase that is, uh, if we keep doing the things, uh, if, we, if we don't make the subconscious conscious and work on it, we'll keep doing the things that we do every time and call it destiny. And I thought, this is a time when he's writing this novel. This is a time where it's an even, it's an even field between psychology, charlatanism, and the remnants of spiritualism that came at the end of uh, the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. This is a time where people are questioning so much, and I thought, it's a level field. All of it is lies, and all of it is true, depending, on, depending exclusively on the guy doing it. And the thing that I try to do is, if you take a hollow man, and you give him a goal that seems attainable, like capitalism, like the American dream, which is really a nightmare in disguise, two things I consider complete torture, success and romantic love. They are fucking horrible because they are absolutely insatiable lies that destroy who we are and how we value each other. And I, and I, and I thought, okay, let's give him that goal. And then we said, we'll give him a, a happy ending in the middle. The, the, the shot of the camera is a happy ending. We come with him on the truck. He has the girl. He has the book. He's leaving the carnival. And he says, what? Where are we going? The world and everything in it. And the camera pulls back, flies above the carnival. It's almost like a swell in the orchestra without it. And then two years later, by God, he's unhappy. You know, because he, he doesn't have enough. You think that the guy that starts the movie would like some food and a roof above his head. And then you see him with a successful shot. He can't have enough. And then what we said is the entire movie is a prologue for the last two minutes of the film. That's it. Then we understand it because then we structure everything. We said, I, I wanted to open with the biggest question mark I could shoot. A guy dragging a corpse into a hole and burning the house. I said, well, that, that should intrigue some people. And then if we did our job right, we're not asking you to like Stan. If you don't like him, I'm happy. If you like him, I'm happy. But the one thing I ask if we did is, do you understand him? And that's one thing that is very urgent right now. 
because I think we are paradoxical beings. You know, we at 6 a.m. we're assholes, at 8 a.m. we're saints, at 10.30 we're great fathers, at 11.45 we're terrible employees. Uh, we cannot be one nature, one time, the whole time. That is absolute asphyxiation. So my hope is you get to appreciate this guy and feel, if you can, a, a, an empathy with him. And so the idea was to put all that, and in the last two minutes, th this is a very hard character to shoot. He's 99% of the time on screen. Uh, tracking it with Bradley, incredibly difficult. We, a lot of work, a complicity, and he doesn't change. This is, you know, there are two great characters in every literary form. Those that change, which is the fucking arc that everybody keeps torturing everybody about. What is the arc of the character? And the other ones, which can be Voltaire's Candide, or it can be this guy, the ones that doesn't, that they don't change. And when, and it is said, I read it in an, an old text about Voltaire, they said, Candide tests and exposes the world. So this was perfect, but then you have to do it for the whole duration. And if I may, I'm sorry, this is the second question. <laughs> sorry. Is is and then we decided formal things. We said, the first time he speaks, we should not see his face. He should be in the shadows because he's gonna lie. Many, many times in the movie, we don't see his face. We're on his back because we don't need to see his face. He's gonna lie. You know, and, and, and we decided, I remember lighting the, the little uh, Enoch, and Bradley would say, what does one have to do to get some light on the face? <laughs> this, this little bastard gets it all the time. But I think there they were decisions that were very important on that. You know, I, I mean, I, I hope I answered the question, whatever it was. Oh, it's great. Um, okay, so I'm going to um, get director. So um, let's take advantage of that. Uh, what a privilege to be in your presence. By, by the way, uh, if I, if I, if I, let, me, let me say this. Uh, this is great because we make chairs and tables. You cannot have the discussion with anyone that doesn't make chairs and tables. I don't use glue. I don't use nails. This is how I put it together, so let's fucking talk about it. And you guys make chairs and tables, so let's talk so about it. So here's that. one. Um, what I admire most about your films, I think, I mean, it's a long list, but is how you work with your departments. So yeah. in, in your movies, going back to Kronos, the photography, the production design, the wardrobe, hair and makeup, it, it's just always impeccable. You're just in it with everyone. And I'd love for you to talk to a room full of directors about how you work with department heads in general and in this film in particular? Well, if you heard me talk about this before, I apologize if I repeat myself, but there's the difference between eye protein and eye candy. Eye protein is nutritious, eye candy is not. And eye protein is to story and character, period. You're telling the story. There's not such a thing as those departments. There's only the movie. So, you know, if you create a crappy set and you light it, even if you light it prodigiously, it's a crappy set lit beautifully. If the wardrobe uh, color palette and the language of the textures is in opposition to the production design and not in harmony, or in opposition by design, you know, it will not tell the story. So look, I'll give you an example. The, we'll, we can take any, any, any set you want and we can talk about it, but the Lilith's office 
is not only an alley, but is uh, all the woodwork is designed as a psychological blood test. You know, like a rush rack, you say, a rush rack te test, and uh, everything is hidden. Everything is behind secret doors. The, the, the recorder, her bathroom, the safe. So this is The her. office itself. The, the office itself. She is a beautiful office full of secret compartments that hide a lot of things. And there is an arrogance to the office. You know, there is, there is not a, a brilliant psychologist with open books all disseminated with a glass of water. That is, there is an arrogance uh, and there's a, a put-together staging of the office that is also present in the way she moves. When, when Kate and I started talking, uh, my instruction to her is move like a cat, like a big cat, like a lion that is in, in its domain. You move like feline, precise, and then we crack it. Now and then we crack it. You, when Stan is not looking, we'll let Lilith crack a little. And to Stan, for example, the first instruction I gave him was you have to go to the gym, take boxing, and get in the ring and get beaten and beat somebody <laughs> twice a week. <laughs> Because a guy in the 30s that was uh, hoping trains during depression knows how to, the physicality that he carried himself at that moment needs to know that. And if you're guarded, you're guarded as somebody that has been punched or has fought for a piece of bread or et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And, and so, a uh, two-story. Uh, Stan uh, starts with one little bag and one radio, nothing more, just a silhouette. The camera follows him, so forth. Uh, another said, uh, Grindel. When we go through the factory the preamble of that factory, that corridor with the circles, and I asked the actor not to do anything because then he would be, it would be too much. The, the, the production sign already told us the powerful nature of this guy, and he's just waiting in the chair. And then we said, what do we do? He says, be nice and ask him for his coat. That's the most disarming <laughs> gesture you can have from this guy. Can I have your coat unfolded? And thank you for being here. So uh, the, those sets are beautiful, but they're two story. Every time the, the cabaret, again, it's a circle. It's a circle and a circle where he performs the magic. And uh, we lay it out so the audience is mostly in shadows. By the way, the woman that picks him up when he falls is Romina Power, which is Tyrone Power's daughter. <laughs> She came to do that little cameo. Anyway, that, that, that's, uh, and, and what I do is this. I sit the heads of the department and I, I work alone with what I call the submarine, which is three or four people that I use every time, depending on what project it is. I call this guy, that guy, this, this lady, that, whatever is needed. And I, and, I, and I work with them alone and we say, these are the language of the shapes, these are the ideas. And then Do you mean work alone as a group or one-on-one? A group, a group, one-on-one. Every day we talk, what are we doing here? For example, the carnival, incredibly difficult not to art direct it so it looks whimsical. If you over art direct that by one millimeter, then you, you see a decision. I direct her, and not a place. I'm saying, look at how smart I am. Look at my carnival 
via Charles Adams or whatever. No, it's a fucking stinky carnival in the middle of nowhere. B B movie carnival, like it's a B series carnival, which is where the geeks wear. And we started the the typography and the design of the uh, of the uh, how do you say advertisements. There were only three great authors of that type of image. And then we go to it, and for example, when Stan is going to start talking, he's in red, you know? He's alive still in the carnival, and there's his darkness and so forth. So um, another thing, eyes. We said uh, every time we can, there should be one eye as a symbol. That will be also the circle, the baby, the giant eye that opens in the carnival, the eye that he has here, the amulets of Xena, and so forth. And it's to, to, to story. So after I work with them, production design comes, we talk about it, that we create the sets so they can accommodate the light, then the DP comes, we talk about that. We talk, for example, about doing cross-lighting, which is the classical academic cross-lighting on a, on a 30s, 40s movie. And you will see it, I hope, one day in the black and white. And we lowered the ceilings. So the ceilings were barely above six uh, feet and a couple of inches. So they're always in the frame. And, 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 uh, and uh, then we go to set design, set, set dressing and wardrobe. And we talk about it and we say, well, let's make Lilith really tight in her clothes. Like they're containing her. You know, we make uh, Xena flowing and green. Uh, and so on, so on. But everything is to story and character. That's a short, short answer, which I should have started with. That's fantastic. Um, so, an interesting juxtaposition between the Goulding version of the movie can be found, I think, in the the scene in which Dory appears uh, to Ezra Grindel. Um, for starters, in the in the Goulding version, uh, Molly as Dory is idealized and kind of kind of painterly. It's like a Renoir. Um, while your Dory is lit very coldly, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, she's bloody. Uh, and she's almost foreboding. And then you choose to have Grindel make the discovery um, rather than what Golding does, which is to have Molly confess. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about why you made those choices? Well, the first thing we decided is let's not watch that movie at all. <laughs> so I, I, Because you cannot define yourself by opposition. And I said, I'm not doing anything with that movie. I'm doing the book. And in the book, the scene uh, is uh, Molly enters naked in the tabernacle. And Grindel launches and reveals that all his aching is really uh, quite grotesque because he starts pawing her and grabbing her. And, and, and I thought, well, that's not an image I want to <laughs> generate into the world. But what can I do? And I said, well, I'll make her a, a, an image of his past with the blood, right? But how do I present that side of Grindel? And I said, I'll have him confess. He wants to see her so bad that he tells this guy a secret nobody, not even Lilith, apparently knew. And uh, then I'll talk about that a little more, I hope. But he says, I hurt many women. I hurt them. And, and, and it's really disarmingly horrible that he is saying, okay, I trust you so much, I'm going to tell you something absolutely horrible. But at the same time, this guy that you could have felt, oh, he's 
not that bad. It is that bad, which is also very much today. <laughs> and and I think and I think then when he grabs her, she she can't take it, you know. So uh, we we try to do that uh, obliquely because in the book it's 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 quite different. And Stan is very complicit in the book in a, in a different way. And I, I think one of the shots I love the most is when he's punching him for the last time and he falls and we and he falls in, and we see his eyes and 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 he's completely finally you said three fathers yeah he's finally killed his father for the second time the three fathers is look if, if he had money he would be Grindel if he drank enough he would be Pete and if he was ruthless enough he would be Clem he cannot be any of them because the tragedy with Stan is that he's a maybe he isn't because the a maybe is a never so uh, it's it's a really it's a really interesting moment when he goes overboard with the father, and he immediately goes, "I'm gonna do whatever I need to do to get out of here," and he kills Anderson and he breaks the windows of the car and so forth, and we go from there. So much of the movie, and all your movies, uh, I mean, I just think of Pan's Labyrinth uh, and the, um, but. It, it, this movie has incredible staging. Uh, it's just breathtaking, um, and it's just it's it's actors' relation to one another, how they relate to the sets you've created, and then the camera, and it all coming together so beautifully. And I'd love for you to speak again to this room full of directors about how you and the actors and Dan Lautzen work together to block and then film so many of these scenes? What is your process? Well, we had, we had certain notions from the beginning. Like, we, we, we knew the camera would never, ever, ever stop. It's never on a tripod. It's never immobile. It's always following Stan. You know, it's always, I said, it's like a child. is like Stan, as a child, trying to look for answers. The ideal was uh, if, you, if you loop the movie in a circle, it should be able to him crying, and he starts dragging the corpse again. And it's him thinking about the whole thing and then dragging the corpse again. So it's a circle. So the camera needs to be continually moving. But then the staging, something really interesting happened. I, I can tell you a deliberate staging, which was early, early in the shoot, for example, when he goes to the office of Lilith, I start uh, very deliberately on the script, is, uh, haven't you heard we are at war? which obviously refers to them and the world. But uh, uh, then we have two opposing sides over and over of him and her. But then when they come together and she's below him, listening to him, and says, do you have something big enough or interesting enough for me? And then she gets up and the camera rises with her. And now, all of a sudden, you go, okay, they're now equal. From that moment on, it's a single shot. Until right. until they make the deal, because you want you want to not break that. Now it's not over and over. It's like you need that tension to be there. But the thing that uh, happened that is really interesting is in, both there and in the editing, I learned to listen to the movie more in a way that uh, it was not just what I planned, but what was presenting. So you know, some people say the great actor is not the one that delivers a line, but the one that listens to one. And the same is true for a director, I believe. And, and we started um, 
you know, I started to keeping the integrity of Normally I should just snip it, barely on each side to, to make the cut. And I started running the scene with a camera on a little, on the short techno. Uh, and I staged according to, uh, if, if the scene kept going, I said, okay, now we're going to go here. And when I got the take that I liked, I immediately went to my storyboards and reorganized. But I started to see what the actors were doing and allowing them the space to play the whole scene uh, and, 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 and find how I was going to then go at it. That was very, very important. And the camera, 90% of the time, is not above the height of a child. You know, I wanted that point of view. Uh, I think ultimately Stanton uh, reveals himself a few times in the movie, and he always reveals himself as a, as a scared child. There's something beautiful when he says, I've, scared all, I've been scared all my life, but I fight it, I fight it. And when he talks to... Uh, to Lilith, and he says, uh, I know what I do, and you're not going to, I'm not my father. And of course, he's saying, I am my father, and I don't know what I do. <laughs> you know, so it's, it, it was really, and then you stage, um, not just for the choreography, which is always nice, but you, you stage it for power or dynamics. Lilith comes forward, he recedes, he goes forward, she recedes. Uh, the, the balance between those two, which, I mean, we built the movie with uh, mini plays for Lilith and Stan that tried, they rebalance each other. One seems to have the upper hand, the other one seems to have the upper hand. So you didn't know who was really winning or on top. Uh, and, and, and that, then the camera movement is to story. One of the things we decided and kept is the widest lens movie I've ever done. Because what we wanted is, uh, we wanted the world to, to be part of the characters. Because the city is part of the characters. And, uh, and the deco uh, uh, harshness of it all is part of, for example, every time a door opens, I was saying that every, every door that opens is a vacuum. If you see the movie again, there's a vacuum like a spaceship. And we wanted that atmosphere, that, that all these uh, angularities in the deco and all the uh, movement and the skies in the carnival to be in the frame. One of the things we do, if you watch it again, is there's a lot of skies in the carnival. And once they leave the carnival, we almost never go to an exterior in the city. And most of the time when we go, there are buildings on the way. Yeah. You know, So the camera and the way we used it and the lensing of it had that purpose. The, the atmosphere is the characters. And very rarely uh, do we go to a really tight close-up. And it's always when Stan is going back. And we, see, I can, we shot an incredible amount of the flashback. And uh, the movie was 3 hours 30 the first time. When I cut it the first time, now it's 2.19. And, and one of the things that was purposely, instead of doing a flashback, we did only dreams. Uh, and that's what we shot a lot of. And every time we got to stand close, we should sense what the memory is. So the first time we go really, really close is when Pete is saying, uh, and for a boy, there is a father. There's always a father. And, and he lights the, the match, which hopefully tells you that's the guy he burned before you even know. But it's an internal moment. And obviously the ending. 
the ending was indicated in the screenplay and it was presented to Bradley from the beginning. I said, the ending is just you. We stopped seeing the other character, you know, masterfully played by a, by a great actor. But we <laughs> and, and, and if I may, it, it is. Because everything is, you do it so real, so absolutely offhandedly brutal. And, and one of the things uh, we decided is, it's not about surprising you with the what. Actually, we try for you to understand that he's going to be the geek almost from minute 10. This is not about you, oh, it's about you going, oh, with not the what, but the how. Because, and we said, if we make that brutality simple, it will be a punch in the gut. And, and we abandon, little by little, we abandon all pyrotechnics. They go away. When he goes, when he goes into the hobo camp and he gives the watch, there's a very nice little moment where he gives the watch and the ticking stays. Even the watch is gone, but the ticking will never go away, you know? And then he goes to, to this place, and he enters this uh, sort of abdominal cavity in red with a circle behind him. And we, the staging is very, very, very simple. We, we start to run on that, and then the ending is uh, one shot, and it was indicated in the screenplay, we, <laughs> which <laughs> we see everything come tumbling down, because it's the first time we're going to finally meet Stan. And the idea is, when a serial killer or a criminal is found out, one of the things that emerges relief. And that is a big difference between the two versions. I'm not saying you are doomed because you, no, you know, you know. there's a satisfaction of a guy that says, am I a high-class player? Am I a sophisticated man of the world? Am I, and you know, you're not any of that. What do you think about this? And now he has the final mirror, which is, which offers him the most sacred moment you can get in any life, and which we all get, which is when we are alone or with someone and we find out who we are. And it can happen at the end of your life, or it can happen in a relationship, or an opportunity, or a, a loss. And then we go, this is who we are. And it's incredibly humbling, and we wanted him to, we talked about showing all the colors possible, and uh, we were so afraid of that moment that you remember this. We were so afraid of that moment that we said, we'll travel all over the world and everywhere we go with half of that camper. And we'll shoot it as many times as we need to, 20 times. And I would say to Riley, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. We'll do it again and again and again. And then that day there was hurricane-level winds. And, and Miles' partner, my producing, Miles, my producing partner, comes in and says, we're going to shoot the trailer. I go, what the, what are you talking about? Nobody's ready. We haven't done this. We haven't done that. He says, well, is that or stopping? And so we went into the trailer. We called you. You came in. We shot it. And uh, what you see is the first complete take. You know, and, 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 uh, and uh, we, him and I were crying. We said everything came out, loss, relief, abandonment, because noir is the, 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 the genre of disappointment and loss at the end of the day. And I said, this is the perfect day. Let's do it again. <laughs> and we did a few more, and that's the best one. So that's, uh, that's the important one. So uh, I've known this guy for a little while now. Um, he's in Pinocchio, he's, by the way. Uh, um, <laughs> and... Uh, 
he's an incredibly generous um, and astonishing filmmaker. And you got to experience that he's also an incredibly generous and astonishing man. Um, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 